0: Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the way forward for one of the building blocks of zero trust. New advice from CISA to guard against vulnerabilities and the signals revolution happening at DLA. It's Wednesday, November 16th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. The Cloud Together Summit is tomorrow. It features speakers from the National Security Agency, CISA, DISA, and a lot more. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can see the full list of speakers and sign up through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Defense Department's zero trust strategy is in the public review process now. The chief information officer at DOD, John Sherman, said last week it should be out, quote, very soon. Jeremy Grants, Managing Director of Technology Business Strategy at Venable and Coordinator of the Better Identity Coalition. He's former Senior Executive Advisor at the National Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Jeremy, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Identity is such a critical part of everybody's zero trust strategy, not just John Sherman's at DOD. What are you seeing as far as progress that agencies and organizations are making at identity management toward their zero trust goals? Welcome.
1: Hey, thanks. Great to be here, Francis. You know, I'd say things are, you know, a little mixed right now in terms of there's a lot of interest from agencies, but they're trying to figure out, you know, what they should do and, you know, how they should do it and also importantly, how to pay for it. Um, And I think, look, you know, look, going back to the start of the year, the issuance of M2209, uh, you know, which was uh, the White House Zero Trust Strategy, a lot of focus on the identity side of things that obviously came, you know, in too late to actually align with the FY23 budget requests. And so I know, you know, talking to a lot of agencies and other stakeholders across town, people are really interested to see the FY24 request when it emerges in about three months. Because, you know, at least from what we're hearing, it's the first time that you'll start to see budget requests align with that strategy. Um, You know, in lieu of money right now, not to say that some agencies aren't going forward, but I think a lot are trying to really focus on when we think about, you know, what a proper identity and access management pillar looks like of uh, implementing the zero trust strategy. What are the things we should be thinking about? Uh, A lot of focus on implementing phishing resistant authentication, be it, uh, you know, You already have it today with, you know, the PIV cards, but also, you know, bringing in new things like FIDO security keys. And so I think a lot of discussions around how do we architect all of those elements together and, you know, look to to roll things forward in the new year.
0: So two critical things that you mentioned there. Agencies are looking for what they should do and how they should pay for it. Now, you address the pay for it part a little bit in that these organizations are trying to find money where they can and repurpose it toward their zero trust efforts and then see what happens in 24. What to do, I guess, is the critical piece of this then. If, if there's a little bit of a way ahead as far as how to pay for it, what is the way ahead that agencies that are having some success are doing in the what to do piece of that, Jeremy?
1: Yeah, well, I think a lot of what, you know, agencies are are trying to sort through right now. Uh, and, you know, these are constructive discussions is, look, I've got my PIV infrastructure. We've had this for 15, 20 years now, not 20, maybe, you know, 17. If I'm going to start to bring in alternative authenticators, which NIST says you can now do under FIPS 201, uh, which is the standard that over, you know, over, you know, guide, governs what you're doing on the authentication front. And so if I want to start bringing in, you know, other phishing resistant authenticators, say like a FIDO security key, well, how does that fit into my existing identity and access management set of solutions? You know, I know how to provision a PIV card and revoke it and, you know, bind the certificates to identity. How does that work with alternative authenticators? And so here, I think you're starting to see agencies are really thinking through this right now. Um, you know, you're seeing pockets of where they figured it out, but there's not necessarily um The same level of maturity, I think, you know, from both agencies and the vendor community and tying those pieces together. And so I expect this to get a lot of attention in 2023 uh, that we shift from, you know, the strategy to the actual execution of it.
0: In the pockets where they've figured it out, what have they figured out? What do they know that other organizations should know?
1: I think there's a couple of things they're figuring out. One is, you know, the question of revocation. So right now, if I just want to revoke a PIV card, I revoke the, you know, the, you know, uh, public keys, you know, the certificates that are associated with it. If I'm using something, say, like a YubiKey as an alternative authenticator, well, you know, how do I manage revocation there as well? Because it's going to be a different set of public keys that I'm storing for those authentication certificates in the PIV card. That means you probably want to have something tied up in the broader identity management system that's governing all of your different authenticators. You know, some agencies, you know, might have a more modern system that can support a few different tokens that are out there. Others might only be bound to one. And so, you know, the ones that don't have the ability to support multiple are working through, you know, how to upgrade to, you know, support all that. Likewise, how do I actually bind, you know, a separate authenticator to an identity? Um, you know, so much of what the government's done has been focused around, you're going to have this smart card as the root of trust. And it's this big physical thing with strong cryptographic certificates. I think there's a broader shift right now in the new FIPS 201 document from NIST that came out you know, just a, a bit ago really talks about this. It's less a card that's a root of trust. It's more the identity proofing process i put you through. I really know your Francis Rose and that particular Francis Rose, and here's the things you're able to do. And having that master record, and then the way you authenticate is actually a lot less important. It might be your PIV card. It might be a built-in authenticator. It might be something that's a standalone security key. So, you know, I think just that that paradigm shift of everything's tied to this this card with a silicon chip in it, to it's really tied to the record of who you are and then managing those different authenticators. That's really where the shift is happening right now.
0: What has to happen next, do you think, in order for agencies to hit the sweet spot of what you just described, Jeremy?
1: I think it's going to be a combination, one of the budgets emerging. And again, I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic that, you know, we'll we'll start to see things in the twenty-four requests that provide you know, more specific funding as opposed to agencies just sort of doing what they can right now. And then I think the other will be, you know, potentially agencies being able to share best practices where they have had success. Or, you know, look, I'd love to see NIST, you know, tackle this in their National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, uh, you know, to put out some guidance, you know, in the next year that says, hey, if you're looking to shift from, you know, a PIV centric model to one that supports different authenticators for, you know, different use cases, Here's you know how you should you know this is the playbook you should run to architect it.
0: Is there something that's over the horizon that folks should understand or start to learn about now? Some technology or some uh, policy that maybe isn't in place now but is coming or should be coming or something like that.
1: You know, I think the big thing is in the consumer market something that we're all going to start to see over the next 12 to 18 months. Is the emergence of truly passwordless solutions. So, you know, Fido Alliance, who I do work with and have for several years, uh, recently announced uh, what they're calling pass keys, which is going to be a way to make it much easier to implement Fido in the consumer space, in that you'll be able to sync your authentication keys across multiple devices and across multiple platforms. And, you know, without getting too deep in the weeds and too geeky, a lot of the FIDO model, you know, anticipates, you know, one certificate per service per device. So to you know, talk about PayPal, for example, who just implemented pass keys a couple of weeks ago, you know, I would have one certificate on my phone. And then if I'm running an iPad, you know, over here there would be a different certificate, I'd have to register. What you're now seeing is Apple, Google, Microsoft, and a lot of the other companies in the authentication space are able to sync those cryptographic keys across devices in the same operating system. So from a user experience perspective. You're not asking people to spend any time creating and managing, or potentially if you get a new device, recreating cryptographic keys, it all just magically works. So, you know, I did this with PayPal a couple of weeks ago. I registered on my iPhone and through Keychain, magically the same credentials, you know, that are not passwords, but instead, you know, based on public-private key cryptography, synced across my other Apple devices. So this is notable. One, if you're just listening to this, you're going to be able to go truly passwordless, you know, soon as a consumer... But I also think that's going to create pressure back on the government enterprise space to have some of those same types of experiences, uh, as well as certainly for citizen facing apps, you know, whether it's through login.gov or other systems agencies are running, you know, people are going to get used to that experience in the commercial sector. They'll want to see this from their government apps as well.
0: Over the over time, uh, generally... Government people say, well, there are things, the private sector can do that, but there are obstacles that we have that either don't make it as easy or don't even make it possible for us to implement some of those same things. A lot of times those are privacy related. A lot of times those are regulatory related. Are, Are there things like that in the case of what you just described that government organizations need to think about?
1: You know, not too much in that at least, look, I think this this passkey concept is really going to be most relevant to consumer use cases. And, you know, whether, you know, I'm a consumer interacting with a company or with the government, I'm going to expect the same user experience. I really don't see uh, a lot of barriers there. You may see some issues in more highly regulated industries where they're going to say, we don't want syncable, you know, credentials. We want you to have a standalone authenticator, you know, like a smart card or like a security key. Um, But I think that's going to be a small percentage of what we're seeing in terms of the broader use cases
0: what do you expect to see the intersection of all of this with zero trust as we described at the beginning is there some advantage or some benefit that the government as a whole or that agencies individually can gain from this type of new credentialing
1: yeah i think it's a good you know point you know when we look at the major cyber incidents of the last 10 years almost every one of them has been tied to a compromised credential usually a username or password Occasionally, you're seeing now people are able to compromise, you know, two-factor, you know, authentication codes or the push notifications. You know, when I look at the OPM breach in 2015, that was a compromised password at a contractor. When I look at what happened, you know, with Solar Winds not too long ago, that was also the initial attack vector was compromised credentials that then allowed the attackers to get that uh, uh, established that that beachhead that they could then attack from. I think a big reason you saw in the zero trust strategy such a focus on phishing resistant authentication and you're actually calling out the FIDO web authentication standards is it can't be fished because you can't be tricked into handing over that credential or pushing the prove on a push notification you're dealing with a you know private key that uh if you don't have the initial uh the corresponding public key on the other side there's no way to compromise it through a phishing attack and so, you know, where I get excited about this is I've been saying this for a long time. I'm tired year after year of having the same major incidents because of the same threat vectors. It's identity, you know, every time. And so if we can finally drive ubiquitous phishing resistant authentication in the market, what you're really doing is shutting down that attack vector uh, for the bad guys and forcing them to go to something that's going to be a lot more resource intensive and a lot more time consuming in order to, you know, make bad things happen. That doesn't mean that hacking and, you know, incidents go away, but you're making it a lot harder. You're raising the cost, changing the economics of, you know, being a bad actor in cyberspace. And that's going to have a really meaningful impact for
0: everybody. And I wonder if that doesn't finally give the good guys the opportunity to get ahead of the curve and go into a, a much more proactive defensive posture than a reactive defensive posture.
1: I think it does. And, you know, to give the government some credit, I mean, they're the ones who pioneered phishing resistant authentication 20 years ago with smart cards and PKI. You know, back in 2005, when the Defense Department said, you're going to use the CAC for login and the certificates in it instead of passwords, you know, it was then General Kroom who was running DISA came out a year later and said our network intrusions went down 47%. I think the issue with smart cards is the commercial sector never bought into them the way I think everybody thought they were going to 20 years ago. And everybody's gone in a different direction. And so the government now with PIV and CAC has a platform that's very secure, but not necessarily supported by a lot of commercial applications you want to use. Where you're seeing the cloud first, the mobile first applications, they're going with FIDO now, which is a different form of PKI, more of a lightweight version. Um, And so now, you know, what I think we're seeing with, you know, first the White House Zero Trust Strategy, and perhaps what comes out of DOD shortly, is, you know, the government saying, okay, we got a head start on this. Now the market shifted. Now we have to respond and sort of adopt what, you know, others are using. And that makes it a lot easier for places where a smart card can't easily go. It doesn't work well with mobile apps, doesn't work well with some legacy apps or some cloud native apps where they're just not building in support for Pivot CAC, but it's how you're going to close off those password centric attacks uh, for those other applications and, you know, start to make the enterprise much more secure.
0: Jeremy Grant, great conversation as always. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Appreciate the invite. Thanks,
0: Francis. You can read more about ID and Zero Trust in today's show notes at TheDailyScoopPodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of The Daily Scoop Podcast. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age. To access the new Veteran Mental Health and Resiliency Resources module, go to trailhead.salesforce.com. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has new guidance for, quote, transforming the vulnerability management landscape. Eric Goldstein, the executive assistant director for cybersecurity at CISA, writes about three steps to achieve that on CISA's blog. Matt Kuz is founder and CEO of Cumulus. He's former director of federal network security for the National Cybersecurity Division at the Department of Homeland Security. Matt, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's your takeaway as you review each of these things that Eric is writing about? Welcome.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Francis. Appreciate it. It's great to be here. Um, I think uh, it's definitely a welcome uh, focus. Um, I, it looks like CISA is definitely focusing more on the technical aspects of cyber defense, and this is certainly one component of that. So I think it's definitely a, a good thing to do. Um, it, from what I what I read in the article, I mean, um, you know, it comes down to you know making sure that these vulnerabilities are identified, making sure folks know where they live, and making sure that there's a prioritization element to those, which is always helpful on cyber, uh, no matter what. So I think to, to be able to automate and streamline and and speed that process
0: up is going to be tremendously helpful. We'll talk through each of the points that Eric writes about in a moment, but that shift uh, to focusing on the technical, and I'm not suggesting they're leaving the compliance aspect behind, but I wonder what that trend signals to you, if anything, Matt.
2: Yeah, I think I, I, would, I would like to leave that that aspect behind, <laughs> um, we're you know we're we're a compliance company, but we we really just focus on the technical elements uh, or try to anyway. Um, and so I think it's I think it's amazing. I think the trend it signals to me is that that CISA really knows what they're doing and they're focusing on you know what matters most to cyber defense instead of kind of the, the mounds of paperwork that that compliance has met over the years. And so, um, and that that kind of goes with like other mandates they've issued recently. So M twenty one thirty one is is kind of the another recent one that comes to mind where they're really focusing on the kind of the audit set of controls and monitoring what people are doing from all different devices. And to me, that's just hugely valuable. Um, it's been around forever. In fact, most of these technical capability areas have been around you know since NIST published you know eight hundred fifty three you know many many years ago, um, with some slight modifications. So I think. Um, it's great that that CISA is 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 doing that, and I think that'll just be helpful for, for our, our cyber defenses in general.
0: What I imagine is exciting for people that have been involved with CISA and before it NPPD for a long time is that that was kind of what the people who stood up the organization envisioned for CISA at the beginning. That the idea was not that this was going to be a compliance based. Um, uh, organization for years and years to come. It was to kind of mature into what it looks like it's maturing into today. Right, Matt?
2: It really is. Um, and it's great to see, like I, like I said, I mean, it's, I think that's been our, our goal for a long time or the goal of, of CISA, um, and its predecessor organizations, um, is to make that change and make that shift. Um, there's still some work to do, I think, um, to really realize that because, because right now they're they're adding requirements um which like i said they have been around for a long time they kind of are are in in this 853 you know technical controls but but this is adding much more specificity to those things which is which is obviously helpful um but they're they're not taking anything away so while they're while they're specifying and giving you really good technical you know capabilities to put in place and and manage and monitor um i think part of the issue is going to be you know agencies adding to their plate without taking away the The paperwork aspect of of compliance.
0: So the point of what Eric is writing, the title, as I mentioned, transforming the vulnerability management landscape. And he writes, we're excited to outline three critical steps to advance the vulnerability management ecosystem. First, we must introduce greater automation into vulnerability management. Automation is something that is common. I mean, all over the cyber landscape, people are trying to drive automation, aren't they, Matt?
2: For sure. Yeah, that that goes across the board. Um, Yeah. And I think you know SBOM is is fairly new so that's kind of you know where these vulnerabilities live um having the, the vendors able to streamline the process from the get go so from their from their side you know all the way through their end users um and then the prioritization aspect is good it's good to see so i'm familiar with kind of the, more familiar with kind of the, the existing nist program around like uh cves and cpes and cvss that's that's a kind of what's in place today which is you know vulnerability enumeration platform enumeration and then critical vulnerability scores um, based on priorities. Um, however, the the new model looks to incorporate some and you know, end user elements into that prioritization, which I think is very helpful and to give that flexibility for you know what's critical to us, what's exposed to us, um, and especially the, the what's been exploited to date um, is a huge practical uh, way to prioritize based on what you know what's seen in the wild and and being exploited in the wild. So I think that's a really good step forward to mature that program and those capabilities.
0: The second element that he writes about is clarifying impact. And he writes that the uh, the key here is using vulnerability exploitability exchange to communicate whether product is affected by a vulnerability and enable prioritized vulnerability response. There's a little bit of cyber talk there that's a little bit over my head. So maybe you can translate that for me.
2: Yeah, I think that gets to the prioritization aspect, which is, you know, it's has it, hasn't it been exploited in a while, which is a big variable in the equation. Um, but then, you know, to what degree is it deployed in in the um, in the specific environment? Um, you know, do they have compensating controls? It seems like there's a bit of ability to to manage that aspect, so they can really prioritize what's important to to the end users and, and the agencies themselves. Which I think is definitely helpful. Having that baseline of what's exploitable that will be will be very beneficial, I think, for all.
0: You referenced the uh, S bombs earlier, and uh, that's a an element here. He writes VEX data can also support more effective use of software bills of materials data. Um, what difference does that make to the end user or to the cyber practitioner inside an organization? Uh,
2: it just gives them visibility into you know what what. What you know, open source libraries, for example, are used in these different products, and where those where those vulnerabilities may live, um, where it's embedded, um, you, know, you don't always have the visibility deep into the the software, and so having to enumerate specifically, you know, what libraries you're depending on, which ones, you know, what vulnerabilities live in those, you know, in uh, in those packages, um, and then being able to you know detect and manage those is, is pretty important. A lot of that's done on the vendor side. Um, but just the awareness is important, um, and also feeds into your prioritization. So, um, I think it's, it's all kind of comes to, you know, knowing, uh, you know, where those vulnerabilities are and then, you know, being able to assess your organization. If you have a good software inventory, you can identify those. And then, and then again, the prioritization piece. So it's, it's all sort of feeds together and, and really makes it helpful for the agencies.
0: The third element is, sounds pretty straightforward to me and, Yes, it's pretty straightforward. Is a perfectly acceptable answer, Matt. This one is using vulnerability management frameworks um, that utilize exploitation status and other vulnerability data to help prioritize remediation efforts. It sounds like it's, it's that. Sis's basic Eric is basically saying, "Just here's something you should do. This is the next step, right?"
2: Yeah. Again, like I think remediation is probably one of the harder steps here. So, um, you know, you can scan, you can you can find that stuff. Now you get visibility into the into the vendor, you know, packages and so forth. Uh, but ultimately, you gotta figure out in your environment what's critical to you and what should you start patching first, and and how do you go about that. So, that's typically kind of the long pole in the tent um, from vulnerability management perspective. And so, yeah. So I think um, it's just very helpful to to for prioritization. I mean, cyber to do cyber defense well is so complicated. There's so many different technical capabilities you have to have and visibility you need in all these risk areas. And if you could prioritize any of those um, to you know a better degree than they are today, I think it'll just streamline your your work. And not to mention, I mean, there's there's not you know there's there's certainly a shortage of cyber you know personnel to address all these issues. So that's where per, you know prioritization comes in really handy. So um, you don't have you know twenty people managing each of these capabilities you know in depth. You know you've got a few that need to really be efficient and, and get the job done quickly.
0: Uh, you mentioned a few moments ago, Matt, that there's still some work to do to push CISA uh, to that kind of mature vision of being a, a, a really uh, technical organization and, and supplying that kind of support and guidance. What do you think still has to happen? What is that work that still remains? Do you think?
2: Um, so I, I think they're doing a great job, and I'm, I'm just I love to see the progress. I think um, Jen Easterly is leading the, leading the, that organization so well, and, and putting out these mandates is really helpful. Um, from my perspective, it would be great to see a little help on the implementation side. So, you know, they've got the CDM program, which, which I was part of kind of starting back at DHS. And I'd love to see, you know, capabilities being delivered that implement some of these mandates and deliver, you know, the, the ability to to monitor and manage this stuff. Um, not only volume management, but like I said, in 2131, there's config management. Um, there's you know various capabilities um, to to implement I think cDM has a lot of the infrastructure to make that possible very quickly so I'd love them to sort of I don't know, eat their own dog food and kind of deliver technologies and capabilities that can actually implement these for the organizations that that have to abide by these mandates
0: Matt it's great to talk to you thanks for joining me today I appreciate your time thanks so much Francis appreciate you can find a link to Eric Goldstein's blog post in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The number one CRM Salesforce Customer 360 for public sector is an integrated platform for public services. It features relationship management, case management, and lots more. To learn more, go to salesforce.com slash government. The Defense Logistics Agency will use 5G technology to get materials into the hands of warfighters faster. Manny Cassis is Research and Development Program Manager for DLA. He tells Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash about the scope of his agency's work.
3: DLA manages, manages about 24 distribution centers around the world in order to sustain military operations, uh, sustain uh, warfighter readiness. With that said, uh, Uh, there are three primary challenges that we face in DLA distributions. Uh, And this is with regards to the business process that entails uh, with inventory management, uh, material distribution, and asset visibility. These three uh, business activities are really labor-intensive, drive large resources, operational costs, labor costs, and impacts the ability to respond to the warfighter from the logistics perspective. And then Manny, how do, and where do you envision 5G helping to make gains in those three areas? Uh, that's a good question, Waya. So as I as say, uh, these three challenges need to be solved by, uh, we have established this 5G smart warehouse program for DLA, in which uh, uh, many of the DLA distribution centers are high volume distribution centers that will require high level automation. And with that said, uh, you're looking at a system of system approach, you know, with regards to robotics, uh, artificial intelligence, augmented reality, uh, cybersecurity controls, you know, automated inventory, you name it, industry 4.0 technology. So with that said, the amount of data and data communication that entails between this systems is gonna be robust. Supply chain data, we're talking more in particular. So 5G uh, will be an enabler for these systems to communicate and operate and communicate and transmit the data more efficient and more effectively uh, to the end user. What kind of outcomes or enhanced capabilities are you starting to actually see through the initial deployments of 5G? So currently, uh, Wyatt, we are uh, deploying our uh, 5G prototype, okay, uh, one of the distribution centers in Albany, Georgia, in which uh, we're establishing you know, a 5G infrastructure uh, in the fiscal year 22. And we're gonna continue doing that in FY23. So we expect once we have this 5G test bed, uh, it's gonna give DLA the ability to start prototyping these IT OT solutions to uh, to target those three challenges I mentioned earlier. And with that said, uh, the, we expect to see improvements in uh, reducing labor costs, uh, improve efficiency and effectiveness and sustain the mission of DLA distribution center. Um, reduce lead time when you when the end user process inventory, and at the same time, the accuracy of data that's very important in the DOD supply chain. Uh, so those three uh, are actually four items that we see benefits from the 5G Smart Warehouse Program. And Manny, I'm interested, uh, what would you advise uh, the individuals in your position elsewhere about how you're trying to reduce uh, or manage the risks? Uh, yes, Wade. uh So th- we have three primary risks that we uh, I'm going to mention. One of them being the integration that Chad mentioned, in which uh, we're talking about intelligent system or systems that compose the 5G smart warehouse. With that said, uh, there could be challenges with compatibility, in-, in particular when we're trying to integrate uh, different robotics solutions, uh, IT solutions with a warehouse management system, warehouse execution system. So we plan to actually, in FY24, you know, partner with industry with an integrator that can help DLA to do this integration of system or systems approach. The other one is cybersecurity that Chad mentioned as well. Uh, we wanna make sure that the data, that supply chain data is not compromised uh, with regards to the integrity, availability and confidentiality. So we wa- we had to take our industry partner with industry to go through the uh, risk management framework or management framework, to ensure that security controls are there and we protect our data. And the third one is uh, cost, you know, uh, budget constraints, uh, the cycle comes. So we actually partner with government agencies such as the Marine Corps, uh, or OUSD, RNE, the DOD uh, in order to uh, create economies of scale and leverage resources. So that's another way we mitigate with our uh, government partners as well for cost perspective. And then Manny, uh, last question for you is, can you talk a little about your next steps and uh, DLA's longer-term rollout plans for 5G, uh, particularly to get to scale? Uh, Yes, why? So we have a five-year 5G smart warehouse roadmap in which uh, it will entail uh, focusing first on the 5G infrastructure, Uh, FY22, fiscal year 22, fiscal year 23, and then moving to targeting the first challenge that I mentioned earlier, inventory management solutions. And then uh, FY25, targeting uh, material uh, distribution, how material moves in the warehouse, and at the same time, the next year, uh, asset visibility, make sure that we have transparency across the DOD supply chains with regards to supply chain data.
0: Manny Cassis of the Defense Logistics Agency with Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like The Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of The Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop Podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.